Hello, everyone. It's Kennedy with the Keeping Up with Kennedy podcast, the show where I live my life at warp speed and see if you have what it takes to follow along. Throughout our journey together, we'll learn what it really means to dream without fear and live without limits. So sit down, buckle up, and enjoy the ride. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. We have a very special guest this week who is near and dear to my heart. My good friend Heather from PT is coming on the pod. I really think that you all will learn a lot from her and her story. So without further ado, everyone, let's give it up for Heather from PT. Welcome to the podcast, Heather. Thank you, Kennedy. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Could you give us like a quick intro to yourself and like who you are? Sure. I'm uh, I'm the referenced Heather from PT. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to thank you for having me on today. And um, I'm from a little city in Maine called Portland. And, you know, I've had this kind of really convoluted path to get me to... Um, my doctorate in physical therapy that Kennedy and I are doing together and we were we've been in the same class and been on this crazy pandemic school <laughs> journey. Kinda just wanted to come on today and tell a story about like resilience and giving people just a set of tools and a, a story to go off of because I feel like, you know, you really just need to see one or two people do it to do it yourself and to get to get that strength from somebody's story. So I really just wanted to come on here and, you know, with mental health in consideration and talk about all the ups and downs of getting towards a dream and a goal and overcoming struggles to get to where you want to go in life. So, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that are going to benefit from this episode so thank you for coming on okay so we gotta start but first we gotta crack our drinks live on camera this time live on sunday live on sunday yeah there we go okay so let's take it back to your roots heather you're from portland maine yeah so i'm from portland maine i went home recently i wouldn't really call it home anymore but i went back to my hometown and it's a lot nicer than it used to be. Downtown Portland has always been like, all right, but it used to be really riddled with crime and mm. a lot of like, let's see, I call it the white trash ghetto. Ah, yes, I'm, I'm familiar with the so concept, yes. Like, yeah, so there was a, a lot of gangs, a lot of like really stupid up and coming gangs type thing, a lot of drugs, a lot of violence and a lot of abuse across the spectrum from in the homes to on the streets and and that's just how I grew up you know and the way that I grew up was it's not a unique experience lots of people are out there living these convoluted lives they get dealt a hand and you don't have a leg up you know and there are people that are way worse off than me but it's it's trying to figure out what you do with that you know what opportunities do you have to capitalize off of how do you find yourself in the midst of a lot of twists and turns that you don't really know how to navigate especially when you're young so I I think when I was young I was really understanding and becoming a woman through all of that so I was born in Portland, Maine, um, to my mother and father who were not exactly well equipped to have children. Okay. So I have one brother 
and a few stepbrothers that I don't really know and didn't find out until I was much older that I even had. So they had my brother first and then I came second, which was a huge oopsie because the state was already involved in our case through Child Protective Services. The state did everything they could to keep our family unit together for as long as they could. But just as recent as a few years ago, I had requested my DHS records from the state of Maine. And, you know, it was just it was just a compilation of all of these abuse accounts. Like they, they just didn't feed me as a child. I really don't have any concept of babies, but they were only feeding me. This is what the report said. They were only feeding me like once or twice a day. That's not enough. No, that's not enough. I wasn't meeting a lot of developmental milestones, which later made a lot of sense to me because I have learning disabilities. And those are also just another part of my story that I've had to overcome to get to where I'm at today, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm in this family unit, which is a disaster. They would leave us with strangers. They they just didn't understand what it meant to have kids, yet Mm -hmm. they had a whole bunch of kids. Fortunately, my grandmother stepped in and adopted us when I was, I think, somewhere between the ages of three and five. And that was obviously a much better scenario for everyone involved. And I was really young. It's not like I really remember any of this. When do you first start building memories? I don't know. That's an interesting thought I have like all the time. Like, what is your first memory? Do you know it? And that's interesting that you say that because I found that I have blocked out a lot of memories that I probably could have retained, but I think that was based off of the trauma that I was going through and the Mm -hmm. confusion because when my grandmother took us, we were still supposed to be seeing our parents, right? Mm -hmm. So the state was saying, you are to have these visits they were mediated visits. So that meant that somebody from the state had to come in and be there while we met with our parents and my grandmother was also there. And so we would have these dates set by the court and we weren't allowed to obviously do anything else. So if we got invited somewhere by our friends or if we wanted to do something, we couldn't go to those things. Yeah, that's hard as a kid, yeah. You're like, oh, they invited me to go to this toboggan day. You don't really understand, but you know that you're supposed to be seeing your parents. So you're Mm -hmm. also equally probably as excited for that. And I just remember there's nothing in the world that will take this memory away of me standing at my kitchen door and we would wait and we'd look out the window for like four five six hours just waiting for them to come and they never they would mm. they would uh, leave us on red oh. <laughs> as you would put it oh um, that's but it was, it was horrible yeah like, you don't understand as a child that those are really formative moments mm-hmm. um and for a child like that's really where abandonment issues you know that that's where those start you know, mm-hmm. those those moments where it's a natural bond between child and parent. Mm-hmm. And when those are not present and you do not have even a semi-typical family unit, your development is different than everyone else. Your trust starts with your parents, right? Yes, yes. That's where you learn from. That's who you watch. You take in a lot of things. And, and to grow up in a home where I didn't have those types of bonds and I didn't have those types of interactions even, and a lot of my peers in the neighborhood also didn't have that. You know, the vast majority of people in my neighborhood were single parent homes. And a lot of people and a lot of their parents were doing drugs. And that was just the environment that we grew up in. And that was normal to us. I thought all my behaviors were normal, you know, but 
I was your typical female girl with all of these hormonal imbalances <laughs> and being very emotional. I'm sure you remember. Oh yeah, that, oh yeah. You know, if you're a woman, we've all been that emotional angsty teen. No, I feel like I still am a lot of my life. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I, I, I feel the same that. too. You you've seen my angst in certain certain moments. <laughs> well, I think the angst is important to keep. It's, it's, a, it's a spice of life. Yes, you know? it's the spice of life. Everyone, keep your angst. I mean, I went to high school, right? Like everybody else. My brother mm-hmm. dropped out, um, and that was like okay in our family because I grew up with my grandmother, and men are just like inherently more accepted than women. And it wasn't anything against her. I don't think that anything that happened between my grandmother and I was a reflection of her being a bad person, but I do think that she lived a life that was not something I was able to understand. And the dynamics between my grandmother and I were very, very horrific, like very horrific. We just lived very different lives. You know, I was a teenage girl trying to hang out with my friends all the time, and she grew up in a world where women didn't dress like that, and girls don't hang out with those types of people, and girls don't do that, and girls don't do this. You know, you add in all of the dynamics for my parents, and I was just, like, rebelling nonstop. And it it was really, really hard on my grandmother and on myself. And, you know, later I found out that my grandmother's first and only marriage, she was horrifically abused by her husband, And after my grandmother had passed away, which I'll talk about a little bit later, I remember feeling really guilty about the way I interacted with her after she had passed away. I wasn't hanging out with good people either. Like I was hanging out with bad crowds. My friends were doing drugs. We were not on a good path. And I think about this all the time because I look back and a lot of those people are dead or in jail. We're not talking like in jail for a couple (laughs) of years. Like some of those people are doing 10 year sentences. Like I should have, you know, I should have been pregnant. I should have been in jail. Like the people that I were hanging out with were not good for me objectively. And I'm a religious person now, you know, and I think about how God had his hand on me throughout all of this, you know. You really do kind of become a product kind of of the environment that you're placed in, you know, and and you don't control like who you're born to, like who your parents are. You just enter this world into a random situation. It kind of just seems random at sometimes, you know, and you're like, why, why did I get this one? Why did, why did they get that upbringing? You know, all that kind of thing. But then like, you've really just beat the odds too. Cause like you're saying, like you, you are a product of that environment, but that environment does not define you because you, you made it out, you know? It's interesting too, because I, I think there are types of innate personalities that will overcome, you know, like I think my ability to always choose the hard decision is a strength that I've always possessed. You know, I have made very hard decisions in my life that were, at the time, they felt wrong and they felt hard, but they were the best thing for me. So I went to college, My I call it my first round of college. So I went okay, college. we've made it to the first round, everyone. In what, had to have been 2009, 2010, when I graduated, I went to the University of Maine and they only let me in on like a trial run, essentially. They were like, yeah, okay, we'll let you in, but like, you have to be on academic probation from the minute you start. It was uh, was a wild couple of years there for me. I didn't have a major. 
I was just kind of living my freedom up there. There you go. I was away from home. I was able to go and do whatever I wanted to do. And I was really, really enjoying myself. What's your biggest takeaway? Looking back now, you know, not in the moment, but like looking back now that you've taken away from those years. Right. Well, definitely time is money. You can go to college and you can dick off if you want, but it's really going to cost you in the end, right? I came out of two years of college over $30,000 in debt and I had to pay all of that back. I had no degree. It was actually my sophomore year. My grandmother died. I went back to school my sophomore year, and in September, she passed away. And so I finished out that year of school. That whole year of school, I finished out. So when I was getting ready to go back the next year, I was like, what am I friggin' doing? And I had to have like a come to Jesus moment. I had to look myself in the face and say, what am I doing here? I don't have any money. I don't have a job. I'm not doing well in school, right? Like I shouldn't be doing this. This is so pointless. And I dropped out of school mm-hmm. and I didn't go back. I had somebody like take on my lease that year. And um, I stayed home and I gave myself six months. I was like, you have six months to figure it out. And while I was figuring it out, I was working at a pizza place in Portland with my brother and just trying to really understand what it meant to grieve as Mm -hmm. a 20, 21 year old kid, like who had a history of traumatic upbringing. And it was just awful, right? I, I can't even say I grew during that period because I was homeless. I was sleeping on my uncle's couch for quite some time. And then I got kicked out of my uncle's house because he wasn't supposed to be having extra people stay there. And I slept on my brother's couch for like this summer and I didn't have a plan. I ended up living in my best friend's parents' game room. And this guy I was dating at the time was like, you should join the military. And I was like, I could never do that. <laughs> Which is always everybody's first response. Like, oh, I could never do that. Right, right. But then the, the idea kind of grew on me. And I was like, I mean, I need to get out of here. I just remember sitting down before work and seeing all of these waitresses that were like 30, 40 years old, like still working the same job. And I was just like, I can't. I can't do this. Like, yeah. I can't wake up when I'm 30 years old and still be here. Yeah, and that's the motivation right there. And so I just joined. There you go. You know? And so I enlisted and took essentially like the first job I qualified for, which was a mechanic. Because again, go back to the idea that I was not good with school stuff. I was terrible at math. And I always knew I wasn't good at math, but I didn't do anything to change that. So you have to take these tests. It's called the ASVAB and those testing scores like qualify you for jobs, right? Right, right. My testing scores were super low and I think uh, (laughs) the only thing other, like they weren't taking infantry women at the time, but I I think that probably would have been my first. (laughs) (laughs) I see, I see. I the front lines, but so I became a mechanic and I left four months later. It was awesome. And I went to basic training, which I always tell people is was one of my favorite times in the military. I just loved an environment where people were constantly being made fun of. And I just really, mainly me, like I was right, being right, right. eaten alive by these drill sergeants. And I just enjoyed the camaraderie. And I really just found my place. Like I was like this is it, man. Like I could do this forever. You know, my occasionally crass personality (laughs) fits very well in this 
hardened community of people that like to drink and have a good time and then go to work. You know, at the time I got stationed in Germany. So I went and I lived in Germany for just about two and a half, three years. And during that time, I had like the best and worst times of my life. You know, like you do a lot of traveling and you meet a lot of new people, but at the same time, you're completely cut off from your friends and you, you know, you have friends, but like, are they really your friends? I don't know. You have a lot of friends, but your ability to be vulnerable towards all people is not there, right? Like you are selectively vulnerable with people and, you know, that's a necessity, right? That we need to protect ourselves. But at the same time, it kind of creates these superficial friendships that nobody really knows you. Right. It's kind of like just like a friendship of proximity. Like you're you're like, we're here together, but like when we leave, I'm never going to see you again, probably. But like we're friends while we're here. Like we're friendly. Right. And so like your friendships aren't really giving you what you need. If you're not vulnerable with your friends and you can't, you know, tell them about who you are and how you're feeling and all of these things, that was really hard for me because I felt like, first of all, I worked with all men. So I didn't really have any like good female friends that like were my best friends, you know, and I had made my best friends already in college, you know, so they were living their lives and going on and, you know, having all the fun together. And that was really hard for me as a kid coming through the FOMO era. I don't get it anymore, but I used to. And it was it was really tough. It was uh, definitely something I had to learn and grow on. But you do when you become more confident with who you are, right? Right. The process that we go through. Right. My uncle, you know, passed away and I wasn't able to go home to even go to the funeral or anything. And I'll never forget this because it was, you know, it's still kind of a defining moment in what I'm choosing to do with my life now. I remember him sending me an email. Back then, I didn't really email that much either. I was like, what's happening here? Okay. And it was like, hey, I'm getting my lung removed next week. And I was just like, <laughs> first of all, at the time, I didn't even know that was possible. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, no concept that you could have pieces removed. He's also a diabetic. He had cancer, like all of these things. I And I look back at it now, and I'm like, why would they, why would you do that? for someone who has so many comorbidities, right, to overcome in in the healing process. Diabetes alone, you add on smoking, you add on uncontrolled diet, no exercise, you add on two bouts of cancer, you know. And my uncle, he was an interesting character, but we were a lot alike in the sense of our personalities, which was a good and bad thing. But when I was growing up, I remember he was always my favorite uncle because he would come by and everybody would always give my brother all the attention and so I was like a starved kid for attention you know and he would come by and he'd slip me like 20 bucks I loved that I thought he was like a father figure to me and I always felt like he took care of me and and I just remember when I was little I was really hoping that I could go live with them and that that I could live with them and and grow up in a family with my uncle when I was a kid I would lay awake in the middle of the night I would cry myself to sleep every night I would wet the bed constantly I I could not like the trauma of like not having somebody love me and not understanding why I wasn't good enough or why did you leave me behind and I had a really hard time accepting God because I said if if God is real then why is this happening to me right I, mm-hmm. I think we've all come to that crossroads in our life of like we're just going through right this terrible seemingly unending trauma 
and it's like well, how is god real if this is if this is what's happening why would he let this happen to me if he's this person that can control everything or this being i didn't believe in god and i didn't go to church for a really long time because of that eventually i understood that like these hardships really make us who we are right and give us the tools to be able to overcome but the problem is and we see this a lot with teenagers nowadays is like you don't have the foresight to understand that tomorrow's another day if you remember being a teenage girl and you're like no i just had my first breakup like <laughs> right. i'm not living no this no like, no 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 this is, no. The end. <laughs> this is it there's no foresight uh-huh now i can be like I'm going to take a nap. I can just go to sleep and, <laughs> yeah. and the day will be done. Yeah. <laughs> it can't there you bother go. me anymore. Just sleep it off. Yeah. But when my uncle died and I was overseas, they wouldn't let me go home. I was just stuck there. I was paralyzed by grief. And I remember I had submitted for leave and they didn't approve it. And I just remember being like, of all the all the things that could happen, not being able to grieve someone properly or being allowed to grieve someone is, I feel like inhumane almost. And it was hard and I and I dealt with that. I think a lot of my grief from when my grandmother passed away and, you know, like being homeless during that time because we, we found out she ended up like selling our home to this other lady while she was still alive. So like we weren't allowed to live in the home anymore. Oh. So, huh. yeah, and it was like this really, but like, because I didn't understand how to grieve that and I didn't understand how to process that, I just held on to it. Mm-hmm. And I did that for years. And I think actually it wasn't even until a couple years ago that I really finally grieved for all of my losses all at once it was very intense but like allowing myself the space to cry and the space to say no I don't care that somebody else is not comfortable with me right now because this is what I need to do people are always like sorry for crying and I'm not sorry anymore like if I'm crying and I'm grieving and you don't like that and it makes you uncomfortable then you can leave Where's the space, right? We're not taught how to comfort grieving people. We're in this weird environment where people don't know how to approach somebody who's grieving. And I hate that. Like, I hate that. Yeah. And I hate that people don't know what to say and they feel like they have to say something. That's always when the wrong things freaking come up. This is for all you people out there. If you don't know what to say to somebody who's grieving, say nothing. Walk away. Think about it for a while. There are a few options here, you know, or... If there's anything you need and I can give that to you, I would be glad to be there for you. Just let me know what you need. Simple as that. Yep, there it is. All right, everyone, that was a lot of good content from Heather, but we are not done yet. We only made it to Germany, and we still have to get all the way to Kansas and to grad school and up to the present day with Heather. So there will be a part two coming at you next week for the wrap-up of Heather's story. And I also asked her to give us this week's topic of the Where Are They Now segment. Okay, Heather, one last thing before you go. I want you to pick who the Where Are They Now segment is on this week. So, Heather, who do we want an update on? Okay, so we want an update on Mr. T, an actor that was part of the A-Team, one of my favorite people in the world. I have a picture of him hanging in my office, and I really just want to know... Where are you at? So Mr. T was one of the most famous men in the 80s, and he was a bouncer and a bodyguard to celebrities like Michael Jackson, Muhammad Ali, and Diana Ross. His appearance in Rocky III earned him the famous line, I pity the fool. 
and led to his starring role in the A-Team and even to playing Santa in the Reagan era of the White House. Now, he is a cancer survivor, a celebrity spokesman for cereal commercials, long-distance calling plans, Snickers, Ice Tea, Radio Shack, World of Warcraft, Old Navy, and Comcast Cable. What a diverse resume. He has wrestled alongside Hulk Hogan and was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2014. He then went on to celebrate his 65th birthday on Dancing with the Stars in 2016. 17. He is currently on Twitter at Mr. T, that's at MRT, where he shares motivational content, personal messages, career updates, and more. I went and looked at his Twitter, and one of his most recent posts from November 13th says, I am blessed and I am thankful. I just got my booster vaccination shot. My arm is a little sore, but no pain. I pity the pain. Thanks again to all the doctors and nurses. And in case you didn't learn anything from Heather earlier, that is our lesson, everyone, coming straight from the mouth of Mr. T. We'd like to thank all of our doctors and nurses for their consistent support and hard efforts during the pandemic and the continued state of our healthcare system. So thank you. And with that, we'll see you next Monday, everyone. (laughs) 